The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from John 2, 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that when he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Spencer. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to those of you who've been traveling on spring break. Uh, and uh, as, uh, as we prepare to dive into the text that was just read, I want to just pause before we do that to, uh, to point out a, an insert that should be there in your bulletin. And actually, if you cut it in half, you're going to get a you-can-hand-it-to-people invitation and a you-can-mail-it-to-people invitation for uh, our upcoming Easter Sunday services and also the, the party and egg hunt and festivities that's going to happen in between the two services or the two later services here at Old Hickory Boulevard. Um, and uh, I want to encourage you to really engage and take ownership of, of Easter at your church this year. Uh, I don't know how many of us are aware that more people Google the word church the week before Easter than any other week of the year. It really is a, a low-hanging fruit opportunity to introduce your friends who don't have uh, a church home to your church family. And uh, uh, so I want to encourage you to, to grab more of these. There are actually several of them available. You can grab a stack of them and give them out to people, mail them to people, whatever you choose to do uh, at the Welcome Center there. Um, but we want to share uh, the joy of Christ. We want to share the good news of the resurrection. We also want to share the life and hospitality of our church community with our surrounding community. So uh, we just want to urge uh, everyone's participation in, in trying to invite at least one person uh, to, to Easter at Christ Pres. And so all that being said, I want to turn our attention now to, <clears throat> to the second chapter of John. Uh, we're in our Encounters with Christ series, and today we're talking about the money changers in the temple, fun, 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 Jesus flipping tables over, getting angry, and messing up the party. Uh, so before we dive into this, though, I uh, want to just draw attention to a, a very popular uh, film on Netflix right now. It's called Fire, F-Y-R-E, The Greatest Party That Never Happened. And it's a documentary about a luxury music festival, if you could imagine Bonnaroo for really, really rich people, okay? And it was to be held on a private Bahamas 
Island. Uh, the founder of the festival, the co-founders were Fire Media's uh, Billy McFarland and the rapper Ja Rule. And uh, to, to get the word out and to generate buzz about the Fire Festival, uh, they, ha they invited as many supermodels, uh, famous supermodels as they could to, to start posting on their Instagram accounts to, to the rest of the world about uh, this fire festival. And before you knew it, tens of thousands and then eventually millions of dollars started coming in from, from high-income earning uh, people to, uh, to make sure that they didn't miss out on this weekend. And so the inaugural weekend of the fire festival comes… And people start showing up, people who paid tens of, tens of thousands of dollars to be there for the VIP treatment and such. And what they were met with when they got there was a colossal anticlimax. Uh, there were problems with security, problems with food supply, problems with medical uh, care and capacity, and, and significant problems with the accommodations. And it, it felt to the participants who'd paid a lot of money and invested a lot of time to get there, like a, a colossal bait and switch. And, uh, and, and so what happened, because of all the problems that were happening, was that they postponed the festival indefinitely. And, and, and from that, uh, I don't want to spoil the whole thing for you, but um, now you don't have to watch it. So um, McFarland, the, the founder of the festival, got six years in prison and was also fined uh, $26 million for money that he had defrauded, uh, uh, you know, the, the would-be participants. And of course, the, the would-be participants or would-be attendees were infuriated uh, because of how they had been defrauded, bait-and-switched, and, and, and really, you know, justifiably irate, because nobody has a right to, to set you up like this, take your money, and then send you home without giving you what you thought you were paying for. And so, if we rewind the clock 2,000 years, uh, there's another pretty amazing party. It's happening, actually, uh, in the earlier verses of this chapter, John chapter 2, where we get Jesus' first public miracle. We get Jesus' first public miracle, followed by Jesus' first public hissy fit, okay? So, so the miracle was he turns water into really, really exceptionally good wine, uh, at a wedding where they had run out of decent wine. Okay, so that's his first miracle. Everybody's excited. Everybody's, you know, popping on their Instagram or, or whatever the equivalent was in the first century. And, and, and uh, they're telling their friends and so on. And, and, and of course, Jesus turning water to wine is, is the signaling of a coming feast and a coming ultimate festival that we have come to know as the wedding feast of the Lamb, which will happen in the new heaven and new earth when, when Jesus returns. But what happened first in their context was the Passover, okay? That's the annual feast in commemoration of when God delivered the Israelites from the oppressive regime of the Egyptian pharaoh. And the Passover involves a feast, it involves drinking, eating, celebrating, remembering, and so on. And so as the Passover is approaching, Jesus, the maker of the party, the one who had just created the great wine, comes into the temple with whips, cords, and starts flipping tables over, sending people out of there. Now, what is the difference between Jesus Christ and Billy McFarland of the Fire Festival? The, the difference is this. Jesus had every right to end the party because it's his party. 
And every resource that went into the party belonged to him. But then there are also some similarities in that Billy McFarland, as well as Jesus Christ, had to pay a very, very steep price in order to move forward with, with, with whatever they had to move forward for next. You know, Billy McFarland had to pay and has to pay for his wrongdoings and Jesus Christ for ours. Okay, so I want to talk this morning about a, a few things. Number one, Jesus Christ as the party maker, Jesus as the party pooper, and Jesus' right to do all of the above any time that he wishes because the whole party belongs to Jesus in the first place. So let's talk about Christ first as the party maker. Do you think of him this way? Do you think of him as, as the one who adds laughter to, to, to a party that's starting to decline and he, he, he kickstarts it again uh, in the later hours by, by adding, you know, wonderful wine, high-end, you know, reserves to an ordinary wedding feast. This is characteristic of Jesus. This is characteristic of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The whole history of God's people is a history of people gathering around a feast, gathering around eating and drinking and levity and community and such. You go to the Old Testament, you've got the Passover feast, you've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of first fruits, of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the feasting that goes around there at Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You come to the New Testament, and all those feasts are sort of combined into one. It's called the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate every week. It's the sacramental meal that we do weekly, but that the early church, it appears from the second chapter of Acts, did daily. It says, with glad and sincere hearts, they broke bread together, they enjoyed the favor of God and the favor of all the people, and life together with one another. And all of this, Old Testament and New Testament feasting, is a pointer to this grand feast for which the table in front of us, the Lord's table, is an appetizer or a rehearsal dinner, uh, as it were, that we get to repeat over and over and over again until the wedding happens at the end of time. Okay, so here's the point. If any, leading up to, to Jesus, you know, getting upset in the temple, leading up to that is this. If any religion has good reason for shutting off the TV, putting down the computer, putting down the telephone, getting with people, staring at more faces than screens, to drink and to eat and to dance and to laugh, it's Christians. Every time we eat and drink, it is a participation of the culture of heaven, where there is rejoicing every single time just one person turns away from the centrality of self toward the centrality of God. In other words, every time a sinner repents, Jesus says, there's rejoicing in all of heaven. And so every time we gather around a table, every time we laugh and dance, we're, we're participating in the culture of heaven itself. Call it a rehearsal dinner, if you will. But joy is a central attribute of the Christian experience as defined by Christ and as established by Christ. You know, David, in, in the 23rd Psalm, talked about a joy that even happens in the wilderness. He says, Lord, you prepare a table for me, even in the presence of my enemies in the wilderness. 
your goodness and mercy. They'll follow me all the days of my life. And, and so even in the midst of the wilderness, even when he's being confronted with, with enemies, there's still, and it's all throughout the Psalms, dancing, shouting, singing, clapping, eating and drinking. You know, my first regret as a married man happened the second after I got married. And it's lived with me ever since. It's right there in our wedding album. Okay, so the, the pastor, Dan Doriani, pronounces Patty and me, husband and wife. We turn to the crowd as he instructs us to do. Patty, you'll see it in the pictures. She's got this beaming smile on her face. And, and Scott is like, you know, tomb of the unknown soldier guard. Um, you know, straight-faced. And the reality of what was going on in my heart there was that my heart was leaping and dancing because I just married my best friend and the person of my dreams. And yet there was this mistaken idea in me that it might be inappropriate to express happiness in church. Because maybe that wouldn't be reverent, but maybe I was confusing reverence with a somber demeanor. I've come to know and understand over the years that you actually do not have reverence for God until you've also learned to dance in the presence of God because of the presence of God. It's both and. You know, there's rapture and there's rupture, and Jesus is in all of it. You know, a Christian who is a stick in the mud is a contradiction in terms. And the older we get and the more we encounter the hard stuff of life in a fallen world where people, places, and things break, the more we become attuned to the fallenness of things, the more crucial it is to keep ourselves and each other awake to the reasons that we have for joy. Remember, in the end, we win on a buzzer shot. The game is already recorded, it's done, and it is a sweet, laughable, joy-filled, explosive victory that we're in for when Christ returns. You know, the uh, publication Psychiatry Today recently observed that the average three-year-old laughs 40 times per day, and the average 40-year-old laughs about three times per day. And so there are some smelling salts that God embeds into our experience that if we use them can, can help keep us awake to the realities that lead to joy. One of the smelling salts is gratitude. In all things, give thanks, the Apostle Paul writes from prison. In all things, not for all things, but in all things, give thanks. You know, if you want a great picture of this, get yourself a copy of Anne Voskamp's 1,000 Gifts. Anne has been through some very, very painful life experiences, and there was a point in her life where, you know, it was either become a cynic or become a worshiper. And so what she did was she, she put journals around in the different rooms of her home, and every time she noticed something big or small for which she could declare thanksgiving to God, she would pick up whatever the closest journal was, write it in there. 
just to make the practice, uh, you know, a, a habit of, of, of chronicling occasions of gratitude. It's amazing what can happen to the heart when, when, we, when we discipline ourselves to stay awake to what God is doing even in the midst of the rubble, to the feast that he even prepares for us in the presence of enemies and in the wilderness. The second smelling salt is what we're talking about now, feasting. The loudest people in a restaurant should be the followers of Jesus Christ. We should be the ones that the servers and that the, 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 uh, the chefs and the sous chefs are looking out on and saying, what in the world is going on at that table? It must be somebody's birthday. Or some, somebody must be celebrating a raise or a promotion or something like that. What's going on? And then the server comes to the table, hey, what's going on? What are we celebrating? New life. New life. You know, you see, we're here in a liturgical way at this restaurant. We, we, every time we put food into our mouth and, and taste a good glass of wine or, you know, Diet Coke or whatever your pleasure is, every time we do that, it's a reminder of something that's yet to come for us. Feasting and dancing. Laughter. And then the third smelling salt is singing. You know, the, the sign of Satan's defeat for me in our church is when we sing it is well with my soul. You know, the, the hymn, you know, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. I look around and it, like clockwork. I know, I know who the people are going to be who are going to be the most engaged with that hymn. It's the people who are going through cancer. It's the widows and widowers. It's the people who are suffering. It's the people who have lost children. They're the ones who dive in to the realities of which that song speaks. The sufferers are also the greatest rejoicers in the kingdom of God. And to me, that more than anything speaks of the devil's defeat. He's already lost. He's just waiting to get buried from a death that's already happened. Jesus is a party maker, but he's also a party pooper sometimes. The Lord of the dance is also the Lord of the whips, as we see in this text. And guess what? He's the same God. You don't get to choose between the Lord of the dance and the Lord of the whips. He's both. He is both filled with charismatic joy and grumpiness when things go wrong. You know, we've done this kind of teaching on the Holy Spirit before as well, you know, and, and when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we remember that Jesus comes in as a comforter, I'm sorry, the, the Holy Spirit comes in as a comforter, like a gentle breeze on a hot day, a, a still small voice to comfort weary souls, to, to, to comfort the afflicted, but he also comes in to afflict the comfortable. The Holy Spirit also comes in as an agitator, maybe more like a tornado or a hurricane. And one of the commentaries I read this past week around this scripture says this, if Jesus Christ comes into your life, he will sometimes fill your table with a feast and other times he will turn your table over and spill everything on the ground. He brings joy and he messes everything up. You'll think he's schizophrenic, but he's not. He's just filled with holy balance and righteousness. You know, those of us who have had seasons in life, and maybe some of us are in one of those seasons right now, where we've kept our distance from 
Jesus, from Christianity, etc. Maybe for some of us, the thing that, that has bugged us the most about Christianity and about Jesus himself is what seems to us to be the judgy part, the angry part, the, God, the, 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 the wrath of God kind of language. We just don't want to have anything to do with because if there is a God, then, then our God is a God of love and a God of support and a God of affirmation and so on. And yet, with all due respect, and I've been that person, I still am that person sometimes, with all due respect to that part of us, if we are angry at the notion of, of, of a Christ who gets angry, then we probably have the luxury of a sheltered life. We've probably never been a Jew under the regime of the Third Reich in World War II. You know, we've, we've probably never been an abuse victim or loved an abuse victim if we think God is just a nice guy who's there to keep us all happy and comfortable and never push back on us. The history of the Christian church includes a history of reform. You know, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the, the castle church door at Wittenberg because there were injustices and abuses going on inside the church. And he wanted to call him out in the name of Christ. Wilberforce threw himself fully into the abolition of slavery as a Christian because he's a Christian. Bonhoeffer opposed Hitler for the same reasons. King opposed everything racially unjust and unequal in our land for the same reasons. Mother Teresa fought on behalf of the poor in the same way that, that Surgeon General C. Everett Koop fought on behalf of the vulnerable unborn. And one of the things that all of these Christian activists had in common besides Jesus is that, 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 that they are fighting, even going on the attack in situations in God's world where God is dishonored and people are either injured or excluded or both. Where love God and love your neighbor are being compromised, that's where Christian activism kicks in. You know, C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is a fighting religion. It sees things that are wrong in the world and it, it goes on the attack when it does. It's not a hate offensive, though. It's a love offensive. It's a whole different kind of offensive that we can get into in another sermon. But here's his issue with the money changers. It's really twofold. Their behavior is dishonoring to God. It's also injurious to people. I want to talk about how, I think it should be obvious how it's dishonoring to God. I want to talk about two ways that they're injuring people. They're injuring the Gentile outsiders, right? It says that they're at the temple. The Greek language around here indicates that they're setting up their money-changing tables specifically in the area that's called the court of the Gentiles, which is, which is around the temple proper, but not inside the temple proper. And the court of the Gentiles existed because the Gentiles were not allowed to enter the temple proper with the Jews. And so it was like this, this, this on-the-periphery worship space provided for outsiders. And what, what the Jewish money lenders do is they, they, they set up their shop, not inside the Jewish, you know, inner ring, but, but in the Gentile outer courts. It's disrespectful. Think about it, like, let's say, you know, if you're, you're the kind of person who goes to movies to just sort of escape and to have a little bit of sanctuary, and then the loudest popcorn eater in the whole auditorium sits right behind you. And not only do they eat with their mouth wide open, 
they also are, are working their hands in the, in the popcorn bucket the whole movie long, and it's a refillable, and so you can't get away from it. Or maybe you're the person at the gym, and, and you, you always seem to be the one when you're on the treadmill or elliptical where that person who wants to conduct their business on their cell phone starts working out next to you. And you're like, no, don't you see the signs, no cell phones? Like, th- those signs are for me, you know? And, 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 you know, those are very, you know, sort of cheeky examples of what's going on here. The point is there's massive disrespect going on both for the sanctuary of God, because it's a place of house, of, it's a house of prayer, but it's also, as Mark reminds us and Isaiah reminds us, a house of prayer for all nations. But you're behaving as if the Gentiles are persona non grata. It's as if you're trying to keep them on the outside. It's as if your worship could be labeled inhospitable worship. Because of your disregard, when when Jesus' neighbor love vision includes bringing people from the outer court into the inner ring, Jews and Gentiles together. You know, Eva Hoffman is a Jewish intellectual, and she insightfully writes about life since the Garden of Eden. And she says, since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, is there anyone who does not in some way feel like an exile? We all feel ejected from our first homes and landscapes, from our first romance, from our authentic self. An ideal sense of belonging, of attuning with others and ourselves completely eludes us. It's another way of saying, I think, and I think Jesus is demonstrating by going on the attack in the ways that that, that that religious insiders are treating historically religious outsiders, the point is this. The sanctuary of God should be a place that decreases loneliness and alienation as opposed to increasing loneliness and alienation. And we know this even in our own culture. For some people, the church of Jesus Christ is the loneliest place in the world for them. That's on us. That's on every church, to make our places of worship, places of embrace, and places of hospitality where outsiders feel like insiders really quickly. You know, and this is actually a strength of our church. You know, one of the, one of the repeat refrains we get from, from guests and visitors is, is how welcoming and warm and hospitable. And so this is more of a keep it up, let's go, let's keep doing that, uh, than it is a, you know, a confrontation. Um, but it's also encouragement to keep it up. They're also injuring the insiders, by the way, the money changers are, because here's what's going on. They're selling something on site. Specifically, they're selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons. And it's not that they're setting up a pet store in the temple. You know, they did their offerings and their sacrifices differently than, 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 than we do when it comes to submitting your offering to the Lord through your local worshiping body. See, we, we use things like a, a plate or a basket or whatever it is that we pass, you know, checks and cash and online, you know, giving and so on. For them, they used an altar and blood. And so, so there was this whole sacrificial system where, where everybody was supposed to bring an animal to sacrifice to the temple. And so what's happening is that the money changers are setting this this whole market up right there on site. 
It's a convenience thing. We want to help make your worship of God as uncostly to you and as convenient as possible. Don't bother yourself with going out into the marketplace, buying an animal or raising an animal on your farm. Don't bother yourself with schlepping an animal uh, on the Sabbath there every time to the, to the temple. We'll, we'll have it for you right here waiting for you. What the money changers are doing is they are helping people to minimize their preparation and compartmentalize their worship as if it were only to take place in the sanctuary. The rest of life, that's yours. You know, you, go, go, you be you. When you come into the sanctuary, we'll make it a one-stop shop for you instead of you having to look at your whole life as preparation for worship as well as living out of your worship you can now compartmentalize them from one another. It's like an epidural. You numb the participants from having to feel the cost of discipleship, of birthing fruit into the world. It's like an epidural for the soul that enables you to not have to feel the cost of discipleship and to not have to endure the inconveniences of love. They are a far cry from the words that David, their forefather, once spoke when he said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I will not. I esteem the Lord too much for that. But here you've got the cake and eat it too dynamic as established by the money changers. Now you can check the worship of God off of your list, and you can check out as you do so. Mow your grass, shop for the things you want, get to the game on time, hit the snooze button a few more times. Live the life you really want to live, and we'll take care of all the inconveniences for you over here so you can check it off. What gives Jesus the right to get into their grill like this about these things? Here's what gives us the right. He owns the party. It's his house. It's his feast. It's his everything. You know, the, 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 the leaders, his antagonists say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, what, what right do you have to traipse into our temple and get all Mr. Bossy Pants on us like this? And Jesus' answer is, is a little bit vague. He says, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. And they're like, well, this temple took over 40 years to build. And you're saying, you'll raise it back up in three days? What are you talking about? And it says to the reader that he was speaking of his own body. This is the principle of discipleship. Notice Jesus doesn't explain himself. His message is, I expect my disciples to be on board with me before they know why I tell them what they're supposed to do. See, otherwise, you're just, you're just looking to me as a personal consultant or as a personal assistant or something like that. But discipleship means you're on board with me before you know all the whys and the whats of what you're getting into. And yet, I can promise you it's going to be the ride of your life. I can promise you that with me, the best is always yet to come. It's like Jesus is saying, it's my party, and so I'll cry if I want to. I'll flip tables if I want to. I'll make wine if I want to. 
And it's up to you to decide whether you're in and out, or whether you're in or out. But it's my party and I set the terms. You want the privilege of sipping my wine, then you have to recognize my absolute right to set the terms of the table. And sometimes I'll flip it and sometimes I'll feed you from it. But when he feeds us from it, he does so in a most meek and gentle and condescending and kind-hearted way. You know, it's as if Jesus is saying to the moneylenders, by the way, the whip he's using, very gentle. It's kind of, it's made out of similar material that maybe a Nerf ball would be made out of. The, you know, the strength of his confrontation is not the pain of the whips. The strength of his confrontation is, is the fierceness of, of his feelings in the moment. But it's as if he's saying to them, you know, you've come into my house for money, but you want to know why I'm here? I'm here for marriage. Because my house is a house of prayer. My house is a house of face-to-face, of wonder, of awe, of intimacy, of affection. I am fighting, Jesus might say to the moneylenders, against your actions because I'm also fighting for your hearts. And so come to my table, and here's why we transition to the Lord's Supper. Come to my table and eat and drink and be satisfied and recognize that I'm not merely the host. I am actually the meal. I am actually the feast. And you've got both tragedy and dancing on the same table. You've got the tragedy of my body broken for you. And you've got the dancing, the wine of joy, which was born out of the cup of God's wrath when I went and subjected myself to a different kind of whip that didn't feel like a Nerf ball because it had bone shards and balls of metal on the end. And they humiliated me, and they, they, they made me bleed. They punctured my arteries so that when they put me on that cross, I would bleed out as they laughed. And guess what? If you'd been there, you'd have been one of them too. You wouldn't have fought for me in the way that I have fought for you. But you know what? It's all good because your culpability in that, it's all on me. All that's left for you is feasting and dancing and a festival of music that while the fullness of it is currently postponed, that postponement is not indefinite. He will come. Let's pray together as we prepare for the table. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful. We are grateful for the way that you have set the table for us. We're grateful that you, you're the kind of God who, who commands that we dance and laugh and feast and eat and drink and anticipate even as you validate our sorrows and our tears and our anguish and even our anger in those places where we want to fight for truth and beauty and justice where we see the absence of those things. We thank you for showing us the way. We thank you for being the way, Lord Jesus. We love you. We pray that you would set apart this bread and this cup, consecrate it, 
even as you nourish our bodies with both of them, nourish our souls with your very real presence because if this is a rehearsal dinner for the wedding feast that's to come, then that means the groom is already here because what groom doesn't show up to his own rehearsal dinner? And so you're here, Jesus, in a very real way to identify with our sorrows and to enter into our laughter and joy as well. May this be one of those moments we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.